I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I talk with Dr. Jocelyn Lehrer about the Men's Story Project. Isn't that nice? Masculinity. Everyone's talking about masculinity. Know which features of masculinity are toxic and which ones aren't toxic? And there's some less nuanced conversations going on that are even saying that there's a war on masculinity. Well, there isn't a war on masculinity, but the conversations that are happening around masculinity, the ones that are happening in good faith, you know, they're just trying to understand it, trying to unravel what we've been told masculinity should look like. And that's where today's guest, Dr. Jocelyn Lehrer, the founder and director of the Men's Story Project, that's where she comes in. The Men's Story Project is a storytelling project where men, boys, and anyone who identifies with maleness share their personal stories before a live audience on topics such as sexuality, gender identity, friendship, romance, and family relationships, and gender-based violence, all with the goal of moving towards healthier masculinities. So here is Dr. Lehrer describing the Men's Story Project and what inspired her to start it. So the Men's Story Project is a scalable movement building project for healthy masculinities that is spreading on college campuses and in community settings in the U.S. and abroad. And the framework for the project is pretty straightforward. It's helping groups create local live events where curated groups of male identified folks share very personal stories in front of live audiences of their own communities that explore and challenge social ideas about masculinity for the purpose of promoting health and social justice for everyone of all genders. Uh, And so these stories are shared in diverse mediums like slam poetry and prose and monologues or original music with lyrics that pertain to the person's life, etc. And then it's followed by a dialogue with the audience. There's a resource and action fair for audience members to get connected with personal support resources and activism opportunities related to what was shared on the stage. And then the events are filmed to create locally relevant social media and documentaries. And so, and then there have been all kinds of beautiful ripple effects in terms of groups becoming ongoing or, and so on. But so I've written a training guide and a license for groups to create these kinds of productions all over the place. Um, And it's been a beautiful labor of love since 2008 uh, for myself and for at this point, hundreds of other folks. You know, when I mentioned that I was doing an episode on the Men's Story Project to a couple of people, you know, they said, you know, oh, I didn't know you were interviewing men now on the electorate. And, you know, so that brings me to my next question. You know, what inspired you to start the Men's Story Project? So my, I like to say that it's a combination of personal and professional. Uh, So on the work front, um, my background is in public health. Uh, So I did a doctoral degree in public health, uh, which I finished in 2004 um, at the Harvard School of Public Health. And then I did a postdoctoral research fellowship in HIV prevention at the University of California, San Francisco Center for AIDS Prevention Studies. And so for a number of years, I was doing research related to adolescent sexual health and mental health and dating violence and sexual assault. Um, And during the years that I lived in San Francisco, um, I spent eight and a half years co-facilitating a weekly HIV social support group, um, mostly for young gay men and trans women who were living with HIV in the Bay Area. Um, I worked for a time with San Francisco Women Against Rape. Um, I worked for a period of time with a gang risk intervention program, you know, working to help mostly 
middle school boys avoid getting recruited into gangs. And when you work in these kinds of realms, all the roads point to the topic of masculinity, where if we could just shift social notions of masculinity to healthier notions, it would help to prevent so many different kinds of utterly preventable pain and suffering for people of all genders. And yet, where's the public dialogue? <laughs> you know, and so in 2008, I started the Men's Story Project as a way to generate uh, critical public dialogue on masculinities, but through the voices and stories of men and male identified folks themselves, so that it wouldn't be like a, you know, a preachy soapbox, but more, you know, coming from a personal standpoint. Right. So, so you aren't involved in all of the productions because it's happening, you know, around, around the country, but the, the people am, that you actually are, you are, you are. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, but, so back to my other question, do you ever encounter any reluctance amongst people who you, you know, may approach to tell their stories? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think most people aren't necessarily walking around in their daily life thinking, wow, I'd really love to share my personal story of, you know, X, Y, Z with a public audience. <laughs> you know, it's it's not the kind of thing that many people are necessarily searching for. Um, but when presented with the opportunity, a lot of folks have have indeed raised their hand and said that they'd like to participate. And what I have found with this project is that you don't need all of the men of the world to participate as storytellers. You just need enough. And the responses that we get in the audience feedback forums are actually quite similar um, saying this is necessary and productive and inspiring. You know, so the, the number of presenters doesn't necessarily matter as much as the quality of the content that they're sharing. You know, I guess I was thinking more of, you know, there seems to be this reluctance or this taboo around discussing the negative effects of masculinity. You know, at least men are often reluctant. You know, women, you know, we'll talk about it all day, you know, but mm. with men, I feel like it's just, you know, something that they wear or something that they do mm -hmm. as part of who they've been told they should be. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, but there's this reluctance to examine those expectations. Mm -hmm. So that so that's more of what I mean. Well, so there are there are lots of different kinds of reasons for why men and other folks. I want to say like the Men's Story Project has presenters who identify as male to any extent. Um, you know, so just to be clear that this is not a project that ascribes to the gender binary. So I just want to put that in so that when you when I talk about men in shorthand in the rest of this podcast, it's clear that I'm not in, in the binary mode. So men who've participated in, the, in this project have done so for a variety of reasons, including wanting to help prevent harm that along the lines of harm that they themselves have caused in the past. You know, so wanting to talk about journeys of reflection and change so as to do something positive with their own life experiences of having perpetrated, for example, different forms of violence or abuse. Um, men have participated who want to share their stories of coming out as bi or queer, or trans, um, etc. Talked about what it's like for them to be living with HIV, what it's like to live uh, in the world as a Black, disabled, sexual, beautiful male human being. Um, what it's like to be on the receiving end of classism, what it was like for them to be a witness to domestic violence growing up and how they are different from their own father and how they are with their own children as loving and active fathers. The folks who participate in this project often come because they want to share something about their life that they feel will be helpful for an audience, um, an audience member who might be going through something similar or to help prevent um, similar problems from happening uh, in the lives of others. So this is a very much a public health and social justice project, and 
the folks who raise their hands to participate um, tend to be moved by that mission and they want to contribute to that dialogue by sharing their own stories. So what's the process like for men involved in the production, you know, like from, you know, from beginning to end, you know, because I'd imagine that it would be, you know, cathartic, right? And, you know, a lot of personal and emotional work has to be done. So there is a process by which the Men's Story Project presenters come to be part of the project. So there's two main approaches. One is a call for submissions where presenters are selected based on their draft pieces. Um, And the other is you have an existing group, for example, a group of men who are already part of a fatherhood program, for example, or some other sort of educational program. And they just decide that they're going to do this and craft their stories together from point zero. So either way, once the group has been selected, they go through a six to eight week process of connecting around the pieces where they're sharing their works in progress. Um, At the introductory session, they also talk about just what brought them to the project, why they want to be part of this, what they hope to contribute, what they hope to gain, and so on. And over these six to eight weeks, they're sharing these stories in progress, deepening them, honing them, asking each other provocative questions about the content, um, learning together, watching other Men's Story Project videos or other educational videos, um, talking about issues of the day. And over the course of the productions that have happened thus far in the past 10 years, what I've come to understand is that this is really, it's a profound experience for the presenters themselves. Um, So we did an evaluation study of this project where we interviewed audience members and presenters and asked them what they got from the Men's Story Project. And for presenters, some of the impacts included seeing that they're not alone, gaining a community, a new community of, of mentors and friends and the opportunity to be mentored, prejudice reduction. Uh, One of the interesting aspects of the Men's Story Project with presenters is that it's a very diverse group of participants who are working together as equals, supporting each other in the name of producing an outcome that they all care about. And that's actually one of the best recipes for prejudice reduction that's been seen in the military, you know, where where you have that kind of situation. And so men have expressed a lot of appreciation uh, for the opportunity to engage with men very of, of lives and identities and backgrounds very different from, from their own. One of the things you talk about is how the project changes the participants' views on race, right? And I'm curious about that because, you know, as a society, our views of masculinity, they change drastically, actually, depending on a person's race. You know, and I'm thinking specifically about, you know, men of color, black men or Latino men, for example, in certain circumstances are taught to, you know, kind of suppress their masculinity, right? You know, if they're interacting with the police, for instance, you know, being confident in your masculinity is not necessarily a good thing in some contexts. At least that's what they're taught, right? So let's let's unpack some of that. <laughs> so okay. Um, oh no, I mean, so so from a theory standpoint, you know, there's there's the idea that um, social ideas about masculinity look different in different communities, and also that men enact their masculinity with the resources they have available, which can serve as a partial explanation for, for example. In some communities, if a man feels that he's being disrespected by another man because he was looked at the wrong way, you know, he he might be more primed or socialized into thinking that it's okay or appropriate to respond with physical violence to that, you know. So in different communities, if you don't have a lot of money, for example, but you do have 
access to developing your physical strength or showing physical capability in other ways, you know, maybe that's more likely going to be what you look at. For men who have access to resources, maybe um, going mountain climbing and jumping out of planes and having a fast car might be more the way that they show their masculinity or like other risky risk-taking behaviors that cost money, <laughs> you know? So it looks different in different communities. Yeah, I think it does vary. And that's why we need to have locally led dialogues, but in a way that's, you know, done with care so that the people on the stage aren't perpetuating harmful notions, but are, are really prepared to help challenge them. I was thinking about this because the thing that comes to mind was, and I don't know if you've, you've caught up on the story, but the, the rapper Nipsey Hussle, mm-hmm. you know, who was gunned down in front of his store. And it turns out it was, you know, someone who was, you know, like, you know, someone who was jealous of his success. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's interesting that a video surfaced of an interview with, with Nipsey Hussle from, mm-hmm. I guess, a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. where he was talking about, you know, how people who'd grown up in this neighborhood, you know, might feel the need to express their masculinity in this violent way when they feel professionally threatened. And I just thought that was really interesting. Mm-hmm. No, so absolutely. So I think that that's exactly the kind of scenario that requires this kind of analysis. Like what was going on in the socialization of the guy that pulled the trigger that led him to believe that that's something that he should do? You know, that would be socially sanctioned, that would be good to do. It's, you know, like, and having that conversation facilitated by other men who have made kindred errors in the past, um, committed similar crimes, you know, could be helpful. Also, just other other men in that community who have or have not, you know, committed crimes, but like, but who are of that community is my point. You know, I, I think um, these solutions need to come from within communities and these conversations need to come from within communities. But the theme of gender transformative dialogue, that's something that's been found to be useful across many communities. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's such a full circle tragedy because, you know, he was he was killed by the very thing that he was trying to fight. Yeah. It's a colossal tragedy. And. Yeah, and and preventable, and so and so the question becomes then: What are the kinds of dialogues that we need to have? What is the re-education that we need to be doing? Yeah, and I'll say also: Sometimes people say to me, "You, know, you should just be focusing on kids, because older people they're just far gone." <laughs> you know, but I, if you think about life as a cycle, and older guys become fathers, they raise their boys. Yeah, I think that doing work that will engage older men. Um, so in other words, I'm talking about anyone who's not a kid, but older, I think it's essential and I think it's possible. And I, I definitely have seen men really challenging themselves and shifting their perspectives. And I, I think that change is possible, um, but it, the, the dialogues need to be real and rigorous and ongoing. And the self-examination needs to be very direct and honest and unflinching. <laughs> yeah, there's a topic, of, there's a phrase called productive discomfort. And with the Me Too movement also, you know, people are saying, oh, you know, men are now uncomfortable. I think it's perfectly wonderful for men to be uncomfortable, given that women have been uncomfortable for millennia. <laughs> you know, but in all of this topic of, of men's attitudes and behaviors, I think a big part of the work is for men to have engage in this kind of collective gender transformative dialogue that we've been discussing, 
How is it that we've been taught and raised and socialized to be men? What are the costs of it for ourselves and others? Um, if some of it is not working, what can we do to change it? You know, and I and I don't profess to have all the answers here at all. You know, I think there's also issues of economic opportunity, of dealing with systemic racism, of having a better educational system, having better systems, social systems on all fronts. You know, so but is there power in men looking critically at how they were socialized to be men and seeing what they can do to change it in their own lives? You know, their own attitudes and behaviors. Yes, I think that's a really important part of uh, the set of interventions that needs to be happening. And it took him a year to decide to participate. He was an acquaintance of mine and I was kind of gently, you know, every once in a while reaching out to him. I'd see him at social gatherings. I'd say, you know, how about this year? And he finally decided to participate and share a story, uh, which you can see on the YouTube channel called The Vegetarian No More. It's on the UC Berkeley 2009 playlist. Um, but it's a story of how he grew up witnessing domestic violence, and then how he went on to become a, an attorney and took on a pro bono case defending a woman who was incarcerated for contributing to the death of her abuser named Deborah Piegler, the woman. You know, and he wrote that piece, and then he ended up sharing that piece on NPR's Snap Judgment. And based on this really positive feedback that he got, both at our events at UC Berkeley and from NPR, he ended up writing a full-length memoir uh, called Free Spirit, and ended up doing a national book tour. Uh, the book was published by Hyperion Hachette, and he went on this national book tour talking about the issue of domestic violence. You know, so to me, that was a really beautiful evolution. Of you know, When you ask about people's reluctance, to me, that's kind of an epic story of somebody going from uncertainty and um, not being sure to really going with the unfolding of, of the impact of his story. Wow. You know, one of the group's focuses is addressing gender-based violence. And that reminded me of this, the stat that isn't discussed very often. And that's the fact that, you know, men are not only overrepresented as both perpetrators of violence, but also as, as victims of violence, mm -hmm. you know, so, so not only do the negative parts of masculinity, not only are they harmful to women and, you know, non-binary people and, you know, people who don't necessarily identify as men, but, you know, they're also harmful to men themselves, you know, and, you know, I bring that up to say that I feel like, you know, there, there are more discussions around safety work rather than prevention, right? And I feel like there's kind of a lack of balance, you know, and, and I think we talk more about how to shield people who are targets and victims. And I think that that's that's good. And those and that needs to continue. But I feel like there's a lack of balance and there needs to be more discussion and more examination about how we can be proactive about this. Right. Rather than being reactive. Mm. So as a public health person, I'm really interested in prevention. Right. So we can certainly talk about risk reduction. And I mean, women are steeped in this. We're experts at risk reduction, right? <laughs> we we know all the things that we're supposed to be doing to protect ourselves from being harmed by men on a daily basis. And we do those things to greater or lesser degrees. And then if we don't do them, we get blamed for having brought violence upon ourselves, right? So anyway, there's risk reduction. And of course, there are things that we can do if we want to try to reduce our risk. 
if something happens to us, of course, it's not our fault. So I actually want to point out there's a really important difference between risk reduction and victim blaming. Uh, so just to, just to say that. So to your question of, of prevention, I think, it's, I think it's essential to work for the prevention of violence, and men need to be leaders in influencing each other to not use violence against women or other men or people of any gender identity. The social construction of masculinity is one that often says that men's violence is sanctioned, is important, can be justifiable. Jackson Katz, who's a, an educator in this field, says that all of men's violence is gender-based violence. So here are some premises. So social ideas about how boys and men and girls and women can, should, you know, feel, act, look, and relate to each other, these notions are socially constructed. They vary across time and place. They're changeable. And many of these ideas often foster harm when people buy into them. And so in terms of violence, there's, it's, I think it's, it's helpful to think about, you know, what are all of the ways in which boys and men are taught that the use of violence is okay? <laughs> and how do men use violence in order to demonstrate their masculinity to each other, to themselves, in some cases to women, etc.? So one of the most promising approaches in terms of ending, working to prevent men's violence against women has been found to be this so-called gender transformative type of programming that engages participants in looking critically at, you know, how was I taught to be a man? What are, what are all of the ways in which I was told I can or should be as a man? Um, and let's look at violence within that. You know, it, it was I taught that violence is, against women is ever justifiable, that it's ever okay, that I have a right to women's bodies? You know, was I taught that violence against other men can ever be justifiable or okay? Under what circumstances? And what has the effect of all of that been for, for them, for me, and so on? And so when people start looking critically at how violence is rooted in gender norms and gender indoctrination and education and gender policing and all this kind of stuff, that stands to be transformative for people. Um, because they realize, look, I, I'm a, I've been a fish swimming in this water. We're all fish swimming in our in our local cultural water. But let's look at it critically. And is it working? And if some aspects of it are not working, let's challenge those and change those. Because the good news of all of this is that this is all preventable. You know, this is not like earthquakes and asteroids. I like to say. <laughs> So for the for the purpose of painting a full picture, you know, what are some of the health and justice challenges that are deeply intertwined with notions of manhood? We've got bullying, hazing, men's sexual and physical and economic and financial and spiritual violence against women, men's violence against other men and folks of all genders, men who die years earlier than women in the United States on average of the same race, ethnicities, and socioeconomic status, largely due to things that they're doing in the name of being quote-unquote men. So for example, a leading cause of death among young men ages 16 to 24 is car accidents, and they're often in the car with other young men at the time. We've got men seeking health care and mental health care at lower rates and much later than women, such that men's illnesses are caught later, uh, their mental health needs are less supported. Men commit suicide at much higher rates than women, in part because they're using the more manly means of guns. So they make less attempts, but their attempts are more uh, often, quote unquote, successful. 
We have um, unplanned pregnancy, HIV, and other STIs, uh, so sexual risk behavior of men feeling that they can or should have lots of sexual partners, not use condoms because you know pleasure is, if you will, the primacy of the penis uh, is very important. Um, men's substance abuse, men not seeking emotional support from other male friends also because of posturing and stigmas around intimacy between men as if that's going to show that you're gay or reveal you to be gay, which is, by the way, the worst thing you could be, that or like a girl. You know, So there, there's a really big package of social problems that are deeply linked with notions of manhood. And I think it's actually really helpful to talk about these things in their entirety, like in a holistic way. And it helps people have aha moments of realizing, oh, you know, these different kinds of social issues and problems that we see floating around in the world, they're actually deeply connected to each other. <laughs> they have a common thread. And if we can pull on that common thread and shift notions of manhood, it could really help to affect and move culture on a wide array of fronts and help to prevent a wide array of social problems. You know, and I think another benefit also of talking about these things in a holistic way is that sometimes you know men can feel defensive around being spoken to as potential perpetrators of violence against women. And I think that when we have a broader conversation, it's one way to help men know that you know they're not being spoken to as potential perpetrators. Indeed, the vast majority of men are against violence against women, but that we're talking with them from a standpoint of we believe that you want to be allies, and these are ways in which you can be allies. And these are also lots of other issues that we can look at critically that affect your health and well-being, as well as that of people of all genders around you. Yeah. You know, when I think about that, you know, I, I have a son, actually, and I didn't actually mm -hmm. grow up around a lot of boys. You mm -hmm. know, and I see him expressing these ideas of masculinity, you know, not that he's gotten from me necessarily, but, you know, they're, they're everywhere. They're on television, you know, they're in movies and they're, you know, in their social environments in school. And I see him, you know, starting at a really young age, expressing these kind of narrow ideas of what masculinity means. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one example is that, you know, he feels the need to protect me from zombies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you must appreciate that. I do, right? And, and the thing is that intellectually, he knows that zombies aren't real. He'll say, <laughs> like within the same within the same conversation, like I know that they aren't real, but I am <laughs> going to protect you from them anyway, right? And, <laughs> and so, you know, I wonder. You know, I worry about the amount of fear and anxiety young boys and young men have to be pressured to be in that position to always express you know, masculinity and strength and this need to, you know, protect everyone, you know, the world, mm. you know, with violence. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Do any of the men ever express that this kind of pressure? Because no one's asking him to protect me from zombies. It's just mm -hmm. that somewhere he's gotten the message that that's his job. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm smiling because I, I find that sweet. I mean, I, and also I hear your question, you know, so, um, so one thing I'll say is that so there's an exercise that's really helpful, and it's one of the most commonly used exercises in this field when we're talking with groups about masculinity. It's called the man box. And what you do is you draw a square on a board, and you ask, what are the, what are the stereotypical notions of manhood that you are aware of? What are the stereotypical ideals of how a man should be, a real man? And people will say, a protector, 
a provider economically, heterosexual, strong, emotionally tough, independent, a leader, reliable, but then also, you know, muscular, tall, willing and able to use violence if necessary, aggressive, has lots of women, ready to be with a woman anytime, virile, etc. And in our society, you know, also we think about who has more power officially, logistically, structurally, and that's white, heterosexual, upper-class Christian men, right? Able-bodied and so on. But so to your question of pressure, yes, I think from a young age, boys are getting consistent messages from media, from coaches, from their peers of, of how they should quote-unquote be. And I think it's a tough challenge for, for parents to mitigate that as much as they can and to support the expression of the full humanity of their kids. And, to, and I think it could be great to talk with kids about these things overtly. And also, at the same time, I want to point out that some of those things in that stereotypical box are not necessarily bad per se, right? Like, it's not bad to be protective of your loved ones. It's not bad to be a leader. You know, those can be very good things. It's not bad to provide for your family. And so I think one of the interesting forms of backlash that there's been around the phrase toxic masculinity and like the Gillette ad that came out recently is that some men are saying, oh, you want to throw out masculinity. You want to throw out men, <laughs> you know, and I, I don't think that's the task at hand. I think the task at hand is to point out what are the specific social ideas about masculinity that you have bought into that are fostering harm for yourself or others, or that are leading you to not express some core element of your being that you would otherwise be expressing, you know, like the nurturing, more softer, caring, loving, expressive sides, artistic, et cetera. You know, and that, that's where the problems come in when your adherence to particular notions of masculinity lead you to f do harm to yourself or others or not fully express the the full spectrum person human being that you are yeah yeah no i get that and and you know i think the flip side of that is that you know when they do pick up these messages when they're really young that this is the way that they need to express their masculinity it, you're right they they aren't open to being open about the fear or their vulnerability, right? Or, you know, anything that they associate with being feminine or softness, right? And, you yeah. know, I just want to say, it's like, you know, you don't, you don't have to wear that, you know, you can just, you know, put down the foam sword mm -hmm. <laughs> and just relax, you know? Yeah. I mean, and if they like their foam sword, cool, you know? I mean, I think it's a matter of, of knowing your kid and, you know, so I'm not going to be somebody who, says that like boys should never play with trucks, but also in that same household, hopefully the girls can play with trucks too if they want to, you know, and, and the boys can play with a glittery butterfly, whatever, doll, you know, or whatever it is, you know. Um, yeah, but I think it's just the message that you aren't being who you're supposed to be in society mm -hmm. if you aren't carrying a foam sword. Like if you want right, to carry right. the sword, fine. Mm -hmm. But in, in order for you to be in this identity that that we've defined for you, right, right. or that, that television tells you you have to carry the sword all the time, that just yeah. feels like a lot of pressure as a girl, yeah. you know, thinking about myself as a girl growing up that I never had, right? Yeah. I didn't have to protect anybody. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm, I'm thinking of um, a moment that I, I often, describe this to audiences when I'm giving a talk where I was walking down the street in San Francisco on Mission Street. And this is a street where there's lots of vendors on the sidewalks. And there was a, 
a woman pushing a little boy in a stroller. And the little boy was not more than three. And somebody was selling these really beautiful butterflies on a stick. Um, and they were glittery and flying in the air and just like they're attached by a string. Anyway, it was very beautiful. And the little boy said to his companion, the mother or person that was with him, Mira la mariposa, look at the butterflies. And the woman responded very quickly, A los niñitos no le gustan las mariposas. Little boys do not like butterflies. And I was, I felt so much for that little boy, you know, like who in the world, you know, why, why scold a little boy for, for liking such a beautiful thing? Um, you know, so, so there's this thing called gender policing, and that's a term in gender studies. And it's all of the ways, direct and indirect and subtle, that people of any gender are told they should be as a person of their gender. Um, and that definitely can have such a powerful impact on how they express themselves. For example, a presenter in the Men's Story Project, uh, he participated when he was around 60. And he talked about how when he was a boy, around eight years old, he shared his, a poem that he had written with his parents. And he was very proud of his poem. And his parents glared at him and expressed disapproval. Uh, because they were under the impression that if he was writing poetry, then that must mean that he is gay. And based on that initial disapproval that he received from his parents, he never shared another poem of his with his parents for 30 years. And, and this man's a professional poet. And somehow he obscured from them that he was writing poetry. You know, And so that to me is just such another, it's another vivid example of somebody denying like, of the effect of this on a, on a relationship. I mean, there are guys who've participated in the Men's Story Project talking about how they were told that they ought to learn how to fight, um, being forced to fight in front of their family members, with their family members, like brothers, and so as to get tough and so on. So, Yeah. Well, those stories make me really sad. Yeah. Wow. I mean, and, and, the, and the thing is, so there's also a spectrum, right? If we think about the range of things that boys and men do in order to prove or demonstrate their masculinity, um, that spectrum runs from silly or not a big deal all the way to deadly, right? So what we're talking about here is not only butterflies and poems <laughs> and foam swords, but, you know, the things that range from that all the way to men's violence against other men and men's violence against women and the violence that men do to themselves in the name of being men, all the way through murder and suicide, right? So th this stuff is no joke. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, no, you're right. It is, it is no joke. And I won't talk about myself the entire time or my kid, but that butterfly story was particularly sad because I, my yeah. own son, when he was around the same age and we have a butterfly house here, you know, a butterfly house where they kind of, mm -hmm. I guess, breed butterflies. And he used to go pretty often when he was younger mm -hmm. and he's seven now, but every time he would go, a butterfly would land on him Aww. and he would just wave and put his <laughs> finger out and a butterfly would land on him. And so I have, you know, like six photos of him with butterflies on his finger or on his shoulder or, you know, mm -hmm. so anyway, yeah, that's my, that's my story. Um, yeah. You know, it all matters. I, I think it serves any, any male, right. To think critically about how was I taught to be a quote unquote man in the world? Was I taught that there's one way? Because by the way, that's made up. <laughs> like the whole question of what does it mean to be a man and the whole exhortation, be a man, like those are made up. There's no one right answer. I, I have a hypothesis that 
the vast majority, if not all men in the world, at some point in their life have felt uncomfortable with at least some aspect of how they were being told they should be as a quote unquote man. Right. And that's why it's so helpful for men to be sharing their stories publicly, which is what the Men's Story Project does, you know, to help other men realize they're not alone in having felt uncomfortable with some male norms um, and to help them know that it's okay to be a fully self-expressed human and also to, to share the messages, which is happening in the Men's Story Project, of you know, how people have gone through journeys of unlearning and personal change and taking action for gender justice. So I think both pieces are really important, actually. Um, so there is somebody famous, and I'm forgetting who, unfortunately, but who said that women are dying for men to have their own revolution. And so the question is, what does that revolution need to look like? Um, and I think that part of it is men claiming and expressing their full spectrum humanity, all the aspects of their humanity that are safe and wonderful and real to express. And then also doing everything they can to challenge harmful gender norms in their own relationships and friendships and peer groups. Um, and then also more broadly in, on the community and, and broader levels, taking action for gender justice. You know, so anyway, so I think it serves all men to reflect critically on how they themselves were taught and raised and pressured and socialized to be men. And if there are aspects of that that have fostered harm to themselves or others, to see what they can do to shift it and live differently. And that can include oh. seeking help. It can include, you know, seeking counseling, talking with other men, joining a men's group, joining a gender justice group, making different decisions in their life, taking risks of expressing themselves more fully uh, in their relationships and so on. So do any of the men, um, when they're telling their stories, do they talk about the violence or harm they've inflicted on other people? Yes. So in the training guide for this project, um, there is a segment on working with men who've perpetrated violence. And the first thing is that it's really important for the local director to have a sense of confidence that this person is ready to share that story publicly, that they take responsibility for what they did, that they feel remorse, that they know that it was wrong, that they are committed to living their life differently. Um, where possible, that they've apologized to the person or, or sought to express that remorse uh, to their victims, you know, and that they're committed to living their life differently and have been taking active steps in that direction already uh, that demonstrate that commitment. And, you know, and so as I said before, for many of these guys, the act of public sharing is a way for them to hold themselves accountable because they're sharing their story in front of a community of their own peers. So, for example, there are, there are some men who've talked about their own former perpetration of intimate partner violence. Uh, for example, Hawk Newsom, who's the uh, current chairman of Black Lives Matter of Greater New York, spoke in November about his former perpetration of intimate partner violence. And he has some quotes in there where he says things to the effect of, my love was frightening. My love was toxic. My love was not really love at all. Um, if you are abusing a partner, you need to let her be free of you. Um, and he talks about how he sought counseling, how he went to AA, and basically this act of public sharing and allowing himself to be recorded is part of a way of him holding himself accountable and, and hopefully, you know, a way to prevent such things from being perpetrated by others who might view him as a peer or as a role model, etc. 
and when I say pure and role model, I'll just take a step back and say the pedagogy of the Men's Story Project is deeply rooted in theory of how it is that hearts and minds get shifted on deeply entrenched topics such as the acceptability of men's violence against women. And research has found that hearts and minds are most often likely to be shifted when you're encountering the stories of peers and role models. Either I want to be like you or you're like me or some combination. You know. So there are others who have also spoken about their former perpetration of violence against other men. And in each story, part of what I really try to get folks to do is to talk about not just, hey, I went from A to B, but how, um, so that people in the audience can understand what that journey of personal change looked like. Last week, somebody talked about porn addiction his experience with porn addiction and how he sought counseling and how he talked about his problem with his fiance and what that, you know, how that was challenging for the relationship and how they navigated that and what he's committed to doing and the fact that he's still in counseling and he's still a work in progress, but he's committed, you know, and things are getting better, um, et cetera, you know, or there's another guy who talked about there are a few who've talked about emotional abuse um, that they've perpetrated against their female partners um, there's a guy who talked about being somebody who used to make sexist jokes at work um, in a multi-gender workplace. And he talked about how he's committed you know, to not doing that anymore and how he hasn't been doing that anymore and how he made that decision. Anyway, so the, the bottom line is it's really important when people are talking about these things to not present themselves in any way as completed human works. <laughs> And that's presented as a required component of any Men's Story Project introduction. So it's in the training guide for the Men's Story Project that each production has to begin in the introduction with a statement saying, you know, these are stories from folks who, whose lives are works in progress. These are, you know, being humbly shared. You know, these are stories of, of human works in progress, and we're just appreciative of the opportunity to share them and discuss them and, and so on. So that context is super important and also sharing how somebody went from A to B and if there, there were obstacles along the way, how they dealt with them such that if there's somebody in the audience who's dealing with a similar life challenge, they can get a sense that, you know, this person did it, this is how they did it, and maybe I can do something like that too. So, so I think we were getting a grasp on what unhealthy masculinity looks like. Mm -hmm. So what does healthy masculinity look like? So I think it's really important to stay away from trying to come up with one new, shiny, wonderful alternative definition of manhood, right? Um, so I've seen some projects entitled things like Redefining Masculinity, which suggests that there ought to be one new great definition. And instead, so I think a healthy masculinity, a healthy masculinity is one where a person is living in a self-expressed way, feeling able to express their full spectrum humanity, including those aspects that have been traditionally or stereotypically called quote unquote feminine. Um, I think it's important for healthy manhood for men to live in a way that's equitable, that doesn't cause harm to themselves or anybody else. And I would also add that an aspirational thing there would be not only self-expression and doing no harm, but actively working to make the world a healthier and more equitable place. So I would add that. I mean, I think the very baseline thing of do no harm is, is kind of a low bar. And I would actually give a more rigorous invitation in terms of thinking about what healthy masculinity is, that it's somebody who's self-expressed, doing no harm, and also 
doing all that they can to increase health inequality in the world. You know, and then one could also have a philosophical conversation as to whether there's really a such thing as doing no harm. <laughs> you know, like, is there any neutral? And that might look different on different topics. But certainly the whole topic of men who, who've stayed silent, for example, when they see other men doing or saying oppressive or harmful things to women or homophobic things or racist things and so on. Silence is not do no harm. Silence is complicity. So I think it's really important to do all that we can to shift the norm so that men really recognize that they are indeed their brother's keeper and that part of their task in the world is to help end patriarchy and oppression of all forms <laughs> because they've been, you know, they as a as a gender have been deeply involved in creating that system. That's a long answer, <laughs> you know, but so healthy masculinity, I think, includes activism for equality for everybody. Yeah, I agree with you. Silence is complicity. And I would love for, to, you know, to see the Men's Story Project, to see men all over the country telling, all over the world telling yeah. their stories. Yeah. So what, what is your vision for the Men's Story Project? Yeah, thank you for asking. I would love to see the Men's Story Project happening on hundreds or thousands of college campuses and in community settings in the U.S. and abroad every year. Um, so basically, I would love to see a colossal wave of men and male-identified folks raising their hand and stepping up and saying, this is a story that I'm going to share that takes a stand for gender and social justice. Thus far, there have been 27 live productions. There have been two films made of Men's Story Project productions. We have some amazing partners, including UN Women. We partnered with them to bring the project to the West Bank and Gaza last year. Uh, we just launched a national partnership with Planned Parenthood's Generation Action uh, Initiative, which has student chapters on around 350 U.S. college campuses. We're partnered with Harry Belafonte's Sankofa organization, which works with leading artists for social change. We're going to be creating, hopefully soon, a celebrity production of the Men's Story Project and filming that to create a documentary with an accompanying national action campaign for healthy masculinities. Um, and if some folks who are listening want to get involved with that, that'd be fantastic. Um, so the bottom line is the Men's Story Project is scalable. Uh, there's a training guide and a license available to create your own productions. I also travel to campuses and community groups and so on to do workshops and film screenings and dialogues. So I'm happy to be contacted for that. Um, but my, my hope is for the project really to become a bona fide social phenomenon, similar to the Vagina Monologues or One Billion Rising, Take Back the Night, where it's known that every year at a minimum, <laughs> if not more frequently on this campus, in this community, these events happen where men are sharing their stories publicly that challenge uh, traditional norms and take a stand for gender justice. Uh, so I think that if a lot of these kinds of challenges are socially constructed that we're dealing with, I think that men taking action to shift them, starting with their own selves and their own lives, and then thinking more broadly out from that to the communities and other social structures, I think that's an essential part of what we need to see things change. Well, that's excellent. I'd love to see that too. <laughs> and actually, you know what? I, I have ideas. So I mean, I would love to see a series, a men's story project series streaming or yeah. a Netflix streaming. Yeah. Yeah. So if anyone's listening, make that happen. Yeah. And one, one, one last thing I'll say is that, you know, for the men themselves, um, there's a process that they go through to create these productions. So they, they raise their hand, they submit their stories in progress, their draft pieces, 
They're selected based on those drafts. And then they work together for six to eight sessions, weekly sessions, where they're honing and deepening their pieces and working together and challenging each other. You know, And I think that this is also part of accountability of men speaking very candidly about things they've done, ways in which they've changed, and and really challenging each other to think more, even more deeply about their life experiences, the meaning that they might glean from them, commitments that they might make. What I've been finding is that this eight-week process that the guys are going through, it's essentially a leadership development initiative for them. You know, And by the time they get to that stage, they've gone through a bit of a ringer, if you will, like, you know, with those other participants. And learned a lot in the process. And we, we've actually published two evaluation studies of this project that I'm happy to share with listeners that talk about the impacts for presenters themselves of going through this. And those impacts include prejudice reduction uh, for having had the opportunity to spend time working with and listening to the stories and experiences of, of men of backgrounds very different from themselves, increased identification as a gender justice activist, a feeling of personal healing, of affirmation, of you know, commitment to continuing to do this kind of work in different ways. You know, so yes, I am excited about this project and have been for a long time, both for the impacts that it has for audience members and for presenters. And I'm just really eager to connect with any listeners who, who would like to help this work spread. Wow. Well, thank you so much. I'm really, really excited about the project and, and where you're going. So thank you so much for taking time to, to talk to me today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help spread the word about the electorate, please leave us a five-star review and please ask your friends to subscribe. Please also support the electorate by following us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and that's at electorate. And until next time, keep up the good fight.